Woohoo! Welcome to the Summer Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday. It's Tuesday. I'm extra pumped to record it this week. I feel like I'm just feeling the love around here. Me too. I am just incredibly excited to sit here and have a date with you where we have fun, we talk about science, we make it sexy. This is going to be so cool. It's great. We were actually debating doing an interview this week. Yeah. And you made me swoon because you're like, nah, I don't want to do an interview. I want to talk to you, Megan. And I felt like my heart was bursting like a middle school crush. Uh, <laughs> I felt like I was clammy inside. It was great. Will you go to the dance with me, Megan? Oh, I will. But let's uh, eat cupcakes and shoot basketballs instead of dancing. Yeah. <laughs> middle school dances were probably where a lot of my social anxiety started. Um, everything about it was really tough. Like, I just remember everyone was like freak dancing to Ludacris. And it was a lot for me at that time. Did you actually, that sounds very different. At our school, we were doing like the slow dances where oh. you were like hands apart from your your partner. Yeah. And it was, I they gave me a lot of anxiety. Wait, so did they not do freak dancing when you're middle school? We did not really freak dance. I mean, we did like the cutes, like the Cotton Eye Joe and yeah, like yeah, slow yeah. dancing and things like that. But we were not freak dancing. Oh no, where I grew up, we we were doing backseat windows up. That's how we like to freak dance. Um, so we have such a fun episode today. We have incredible training topics uh, from the art and science of easy pacing, hemoglobin mass, uh, recap of Bandera, um, uh, a thing about core values, which will be really interesting, I think, that'll um, explain a lot about us, perhaps. Um, but first, I wanted to start with the coolest sports story that you may have seen. Uh, so on, I think, Monday Night Football the uh, last week, um, safety Damar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills got... Uh, he made a tackle, and in that process, his heart stopped. And on the field, um, he had to be resuscitated. He had to have oxygen. Um, and it was really uncertain what was going to happen there for a while. All of his teammates and the Bengals, the opposing team, were there watching. And it was a pretty traumatic experience. It was really jarring. We actually watched it live, and yeah. it was pretty horrifying to see it happen. And I don't know, it was hard actually for me to sleep that night because it was like there was so much uncertainty surrounding yeah. Damar Hamlin. And to see something like that happen live, like it's not every day. I mean, it's so rare, actually. I think the last incidence of this was in a um, American soccer football match yeah. um, ab- abroad. And it's really jarring when you see this happen to a player. And there was yeah. a lot of uncertainty, like shrouded in what was going to happen. And he freaking woke up the week, <laughs> and it was so cool after having a cardiac yeah. arrest. And his like mindset after waking up was really inspiring. Yeah. And the first thing he asked the doctors is, did we win? And of everything in that story, that was the part that made me cry. Um, and it's because, yeah, sports, especially football, has so much going on in it. But even after going through this extreme trauma, not knowing what his life's going to look like in the future at that moment, first thing he asks is about the team, is about um, everything that it entailed. And I think it just shows so much about what sports can be and running can be. This thing bigger than yourself, where you give yourself to something that you know doesn't matter. Obviously, when it's a life and death situation, it really points out how little sports, how little running, how little football matter. Um, but that was the first thing he asked the doctors. I think it was an interesting reckoning, though, for NFL players, because I think yeah. NFL players so often think about morbidity in the context of like concussion and ACL injuries and, you know, all of the wear and tear that happens on NFL players' bodies. But I think the separate class of like mortality, yeah. you don't quite think about that as often in the game of sport. And I think, you know, a lot of players were kind of grappling with that Definitely. after seeing and, he- and having this experience. Yeah. And it could happen to anybody. Like, obviously this happened in football after I hit. So it's one thing that feels so available, like, oh, of course that's possible. But any of us can have this happen to us at any moment, especially as runners. You know, a lot of us are walking around with hearts that have issues and we don't know, or even if we know, we don't know the extent of it. And so it's one of those moments to take a step back and just try to be thankful for what we do have. And that's the first thing I thought. Um, But to come full circle on this story, and the reason we're talking about it is not just because he woke up and he's spreading all this love, but on the very first play of the next game, when all the Bills players earlier in the week were unsure what they were going to do with their season after seeing their brother um, go down like that. Very first play, 
kickoff return for a touchdown, which only has happened a couple times all season long. How wild is that? It sounds like, it feels like destiny. It was so wild. And then um, in the celebration, they just did the heart sign with their hands oh. after, and it was beautiful. I was like tearing up as it was happening. But I also love, I really want the swag apparel of Josh Allen, who's the QB for the Bills. Yeah. He was wearing a shirt with number three, which is DeMar Hamlin's number. And entrenched in the number three were the words, if you get a chance to show some love today, do it. It won't cost you nothing, which are <laughs> DeMar Hamlin's words. And I feel like just like the theme of this podcast today is love. Yeah. And I want one of those t-shirts. Yeah. The theme of this podcast, show some love. Uh, to everyone out there, I think that that's our big message. And we'll be getting to that a little bit uh, ahead. But Megan, you're in showing this love and showing this swag and your return to athletics and your return to work after giving birth to Leo. How are things going right now? Uh, I would say chaos is probably the first <laughs> word that comes to mind. Delightful chaos. I love yeah. my job. I love my work. But it's been a lot, actually. I think I realize that the reality of the work that I do, it's kind of like full-time plus work. It's yeah. a lot of hours. And when you have a little one at home, like I'm all of a sudden like realizing that and also recognizing just how many Zoom meetings I stack in yeah. a row. Well, it's so cool since I got to meet you now like 12 years ago or whatever. And since then, I've gotten to be on the journey with you at each step. I like to think um, we're a team, right? Like, I, we're Oh, we're totally that. a we're team. We're totally a team. We're totally a team. But in that time, I saw you graduate with honors in neuroscience at Duke. I saw you do a master's that you don't even talk about at Duke. That was in business. Oh, it's actually a little embarrassing. I've done a lot of education and I try to bury that master's yeah. degree because I'm like, just just a few titles. <laughs> yeah. Too many too many letters at the yes, end of your yeah. um, Then you did an MD from Stanford, a medical degree. Now you're doing a PhD from Stanford. You have all these first author degree, uh, things. And uh, not only that, you've become a world-class coach and coach multiple world champions, uh, a person that's going to be in top 10 you, Roy. Your credentials are freaking incredible. But now that we have a kid, I feel like all of that work is starting to like collapse in on itself just slightly uh, as you make your future decisions. Thank you. Well, that was very kind of you to say that. <laughs> I really wanted to give your credentials a bump today just because you're so humble that I think sometimes it gets lost a little bit in the shuffle. Well, sometimes I feel like I use my credentials to give health strides, <laughs> to prescribe health strides, actually. Actually, we can yeah. use the prescription model, but I mean that in the best of ways. Like I love coaching and being yeah. able to like interact with athletes and, you know, think about exercise physiology and human physiology, like within this context is so much fun. And it's a gift. When a doctor gives training, it's prescribing training. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's such a good way to think about it. I love it so much. Um, but you're also coming back athletically and it's been really fun to see. Um, you did a six mile run today, Megan. My longest run since like being postpartum and yeah. I'm pumped about it. Actually, I got this um, advice from Sabrina Little, who's an imam. She's an amazing ultra runner. She said to reset your Garmin as you're coming back postpartum. <laughs> so every time I do a run and like I, you know, it's a slightly longer run, yeah. I get the notification on my watch. It's your longest run ever. <laughs> and I'm feeling it six miles today. I was pumped coming back. What perfect advice. I feel like that doesn't just apply to people postpartum, but whenever you go through any sort of adversity, reset your watch. The key though, is you need to play this out. You jump from five to six. You need to jump from five to 5.02 <laughs> yeah, right. go up constantly because those little Garmin notifications are very satisfying. Oh, they're such magic. And they also get them for like pace of miles too. Oh, it's yeah. like, congrats, you finally broke an eight minute mile. I'm <laughs> feeling so good about myself. So are there any lessons that you're feeling on this return? And I think it's really important because in a few months, I predict you're going to be back absolutely rocking it and running is going to feel natural. Athletics are going to feel so good. But obviously right now, that's not your current state. Um, and that's how a lot of people feel about athletics all the time, or at least periodically. Do you have any advice? I think one is patience. So I historically hate run walking. Like that's yeah. just like not my mindset. I'm like, why run walk when we can just run the whole thing? And I have leaned heavily on run walk. I did run walk probably for like two or three weeks, yeah. which is a pretty long time for me coming back run walking. And it helped a ton in this process. And I think being patient and like really embracing that process of slowing down and yeah. letting my body adapt to the loading has been something that's been quite helpful. Then also 
just understanding too, going with an Alex Honnold quote, running is heinous sometimes and just embracing that and letting it fly. I really honestly don't feel amazing all the time running. And that's just part of coming back and building fitness. I thought you were going to say, take protein powder. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I have been embracing the protein powder recently. I didn't do it at all during pregnancy just because it was like, oh man, during pregnancy, I was not craving protein powder, but it's back. And I think it's helping a ton. I think it really is. I get a little bit too bogged down sometimes in little signals, but we do monitor your HRV and your resting heart rate. As soon as you started adding a big rounded scoop of whey protein to your nutrition, your resting heart rate dropped how many beats? Like three or four, right? Yeah, a bunch. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure that's related, but I do think the protein's helping. Megan, if, if B follows A, <laughs> then A cause B. It's an absolute rule of statistics. How do you not know that? You need to work on your credentials. <laughs> These are the dinner table arguments that we have as I'm sitting there like downing a scoop of, I actually haven't even gotten fancy with my protein yeah. powder because I've been so busy at work. I just dump it in water yeah. and it's like barely even stirred or anything like that. I'm taking it like a champ. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the big training tip. Uh, We weren't going to talk about this, but uh, consider adding a protein scoop to your nutrition. Like we've talked about this in past podcasts, but I think it's important to reemphasize because it's something we have to constantly recommit to too. Like I found that if I just stop with that, I'll get so sore. And maybe it's because it's in my head or whatever. It might just be one of those spurious correlation type situations. But for me, adding a little bit of protein has been game-changing. And perhaps it's because I don't eat a ton of meat in my nutrition, even though I don't have anything against it. Um, But it's been hugely beneficial for me. Well, I've been drinking vanilla protein powder and I have it in a glass and it looks remarkably similar to breast milk. It's identical. I was was actually drinking protein powder the other day and pumping at the same time. And I was (laughs) like, this is the great circle of life. It is so strange to see this happen. Yeah, I guess you're just processing the protein powder for him. Yeah, exactly. It's It's perfect. I wonder if we can just sneak him a little bit of protein powder because, you know, they give you so many rules about babies. And if there's one thing I've learned in parenting in the first 10 weeks, it's that most of the rules are unnecessary, <laughs> right? Like actually an athlete who's about to have his kid, his first kid in two, two months asked me, what books do you recommend reading? And my big recommendation is don't read any of them. Watch a few videos because I did all that and it just stressed me out. And when babies come out, they kind of just tell you what they need. Similarly, you know, they tell you not to feed babies solid food. But my point is protein powder is not solid food. That shit (laughs) will build up his little legs and he will be rolling over so much. Well, it's taken a lot of self-control for me because, you know, we give Addie a lot of treats. We give her a lot of human food treats. And Leo is like, you know, he kind of like hangs out like Addie and it takes so much self-control not to just like hand him a French fry and be like, here's a French fry, Leo, enjoy. (laughs) I think we should go for it. Because like last night we had, or the other night we had burgers with French fries. And the whole time Leo's looking at us with his big eyes. And I know what he thinking, because he's my son, he's thinking, dad, I want some of that shit. (laughs) And we're sitting here denying him what he wants. Like I said, babies tell you what they want. And he wants a French fry. With lots of ketchup. Yes. And some whey protein to wash it down. Okay. uh, Quick thing on 2023, before we get to the Bandera 100K, uh, there's a lot of these word search type things out there where uh, you're supposed to look at it. And the first three words you see are going to define your year. And I thought ours were so great that we had to mention it on the podcast. So I looked at this word search first and got very different answers than Megan. What were your words? Okay. My words were one, busy, checks out. Two, kisses. Totally checks out. Checks out. Some big old smooches. And three, success. Those are those were our great three words. Yeah. So you went first and I was feeling very inspired. I was like, I'm going to have a badass 2023. Yeah. I'm feeling this. And so Megan's all across the room, in the living room, um, holding Leo. And she just starts yelling out the words she sees. And what were those words? I was breastfeeding, which is like kind of the swag you need when you see these words. Uh, <laughs> my first word was sad. <laughs> not a great, not a great three-letter no, word to see first. Second word of success. It's like, okay, I'll take it. Checks out. Maybe not the most 
most important thing of 2023. The third word was single. <laughs> I'm crushing the S words. And I got really upset on that yeah. one. Well, especially coming after sad. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, who am I kissing if you're single? <laughs> um, but it was actually kind of an interesting moment and a little uh, aside on relationships uh, that in the old days, like, I feel like there might've been a little bit of tension that we're so at this point, we've been through so much together that uh, we're just a full team. So we see this and it's the ultimate joke. It's hilarious. Um, but I think every relationship kind of has to go through so many rough patches of communication struggles to get to that point. Um, so to start 2023, if you're in a relationship or a friendship or anything else, just know that it's okay and communicate and try to laugh at things together and also cry about things together. Like we on this podcast d demonstrate a lot of love and joy. Also, we have been through a lot of sadness and some, a little bit of single just within our, the context of our relationship, a little bit of single. We've worked really hard at it. And I yeah. feel like there've been, there've been years and maybe not even too long ago where if I had seen the word single, I'd have been like, I'm not even going to read that out loud. <laughs> I would have substituted kisses and been like, that's yeah. my 2023 year. Actually, I like to claim, you know, we file taxes together. So I feel like I can claim your three words instead of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. I was going to say, well, Megan, what you should have said is just fellatio. <laughs> your other word. Actually, we should make a swap word, word search. That's like, you know, planning your 2023, but yeah. instead of having words like sad and single in there. We should just have all like super uplifting, like boss swagtastic words in there. Actually, all it should say, every single word should be boss bitch. <laughs> yeah, just right? throughout the entire thing, <laughs> it should just be one big boss bitch word search because that's what you all are. That would be so incredible. Actually though, when I pulled up the word single, it made me think about the fact that if you are single, you should consider having a podcast. Oh. I feel like it's an amazing thing for advertising yourself. Like I feel like, I don't know, we broadcast ourselves pretty honestly on here. So yeah. people have a pretty honest like viewpoint of me. And if they want to sign up to <laughs> hang out with me after listening to this podcast. They've already been through thousands of hours and they're saying what they're getting. Well, what if someone doesn't want to sign up to be with us? Well, that's good. I know okay. we could, we should, we should like filter that out ahead of time yeah. as opposed to like, you know, six weeks into a relationship. I feel like it just accelerates the process. Okay. It's like a social Tinder. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, and sometimes people do not swipe on you in the direction you would hope. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like if you're single, you should have a podcast. I like it. That's incredibly interesting advice, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> so perfect. Okay. Let's get to the Bandero 100. Okay. For context for listeners, we don't want this just to be about people that are really into ultra running. We always want to broaden it out, tell some stories. Um, this was the first golden ticket race of 2023. It was down in Texas. It was incredibly humid at this race, 100% um, humidity, which in January is really hard. Um, and because it's a golden ticket race, that means the top two men and women get to go to Western States, which is the Super Bowl of US-based trail running. So it's incredibly exciting for our sport and also incredibly high stakes for the athletes doing it. You know, there's 20 athletes that show up on that start line having a shot but only two get it. And it's really, really exciting. Also a little bit nerve wracking to watch. I'm glad that you emphasized the humidity because the conditions were super tough on the yeah. day. So it's a multiple lap course. And on the first lap, it started raining and the mud is the sort of mud. We have this actually kind of mud in our backyard yeah. that when you run in it, your, your shoes pick it up and become like 10 pound weights. And it is so not fun to run in because yeah. it's like every single step requires so much work. So it's a combination of, you know, having rain on the earlier loops yeah. and then the sun came out in the heat and humidity and mud. And it just made for this concoction of a lot of difficult racing conditions. Yeah. It would have been my nightmare day personally. Like that type of condition, I suck in so bad. It's like classic armpit condition where you're getting uh, radiated from the ground. <laughs> and similarly, like, you know, armpit hair is one thing. This race has, I think it's S-O-T-O-L, SOTL which is uh, a plant that 
cut you, uh, which is very much like the wiry underarm hair. Everything about this race sounded rather nasty uh, this year. It was pretty tough. It kind of sounds like we're describing like OCR or Spartan. The next step is to like add firearms or something, which is where like Spartan and OCR are going, which is kind of scary. Yeah. Did you say firearms rather than fire? No, no. Like I've actually heard that they're considering adding firearms to Spartan and OCR racing. Yes. Yeah. That would be amazing. Exceedingly controversial. I think what they should have instead of guns, like that's a little bit too advanced. Oh, it's a little too modern. It's also a little too like, I don't know. I don't think we should be promoting guns. Well, I think what we should promote is medieval tools. (laughs) Instead of guns, we should have like a catapult contest at OCR races. Well, I mean, they already have the spear throw. Yeah, that's true. Pr- that's pretty medieval. That's Bas- about- <laughs> yeah, basically, I'm just saying, let's make our sports more like the 1200s. That's about as medieval as it gets. That being said, Bandera has pretty gnarly rocks. Yeah. Um, and coming from someone, I like, the other day, actually, I was running in Boulder, and I sprained my ankle on the wide open road, like <laughs> wide open asphalt. And of course, there was like 12 Olympians behind me. It was like, yeah. great, this is Boulder. Um, but I feel like the the rocks of Bandera are uniquely ankle biting. Yeah. So you've got the combination of the heat, the humidity, the mud, the rocks, and the sodal. And it was just a really yeah. tough day. I mean, there, were, there ended up being a lot of DNFs, and we'll get into that. But the first thing we want to talk about is the coverage of the event. So Aravipa running, which wasn't the um, race directing service, that was Tejas Trails. Um, they Aravipa's from Arizona. They came in and did live coverage of an event in the middle of nowhere with no cell coverage. They did it with Starlink, um, the satellite cell coverage or satellite internet. Um, absolutely freaking cool, incredible that this sport has progressed to the point that a race in January in Texas is being broadcast live for 10 hours. And it was so cool because if you looked at the chat, first of all, there was tons of like all-star athletes in the yeah. chat. It was really cool to see, you know, these really famous like ultra runners coming in and supporting the, the Mandera racers. I love that. But there are also thousands of people in the chat and watching yeah. the live coverage of grainy footage. I mean, the <laughs> fact that we even have coverage out there, as you were mentioning, it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's like a heroic feat. The fact that Starlink works out there is great. And it was so cool to see people invested in this like grainy coverage where you could just kind of see like blobs of people yeah. running. And eventually you could kind of start to identify the blobs uh, based off of like the Courtney blob was yeah. moving pretty fast. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of video games from the 1980s where they're like 8-bit. And so it was just like a, a little square thing moving. I could tell Courtney's 8-bit avatar from a drone that was 300 feet away by the end <laughs> of this broadcast. It was pretty remarkable. But the video game analogy is, I think, actually interesting in the sense that, you know, you look back at video games in the 1980s, things like Pong or whatever, that is pretty lame. Like, it's pretty random. It's not that much fun, it looks like. Oh, I don't know. I would think I would play Pong now. <laughs> Perhaps. But, you know, it points out that millions of people were playing this. Similarly, thousands of people watching this coverage where due to technological limitations, it was kind of blobby at times. Um, and it shows, I think, similar to video games, that now it's one of the biggest industries for entertainment in the world. There's a huge market, clearly, for live coverage of these events and everything else. And so, Congrats to Aravipa running and all the broadcasters. Um, they did such a good job because I think it shows this sport is just growing and it's not just um, ultra running. It's going to be every other part of endurance sports. It's very exciting. Well, it was kind of fun. It was a fun thing to think about like humanity as we were watching the chat because there were certain people that were like, ugh, why is this all greeny? Or yeah. like, why can't we have better footage? It's like, you guys, there's like a heroic feat going on out here. And I loved one of the YouTube people that was in the chat was like, yeah, we should just really like plug and unplug the Starlink satellite yeah. and see what happens. I think it would get a lot better that way. <laughs> yeah, that sarcasm was perfect. It was the best <laughs> response. Um, we also sponsored the coverage uh, we were one of the sponsors, which is really fun. But the most fun part is at the end, as you know, if you've listened to this podcast, we're big fans of the word huzzah. Um, and we challenged the broadcasters that were reading our ads to really go for it on the huzzah and we would grade them. And they all took different approaches. Most of them were like, I said it, but one, not exactly sure who it was, did a sultry, sexy huzzah where they went, Huzzah. 
And that is the winner. I'm not sure if it was Skyro Hall or Brett Hornig at the time, but whoever said that, let us know because you're getting a prize. It was really impressive. We need to step up our huzzah game. So yeah. we start every Patreon podcast saying huzzah and we do it in kind of the same tone. We should just mix it up every week and like play it. with different intonations. We should get sexy some weeks, weird some weeks, <laughs> loud and powerful and boss bitch other weeks. I'm feeling it. So perfect. Um, speaking of boss bitch, Courtney DeWalter, she had an absolutely legendary day out there. She set the course record. Um, but for performance context, I think it's really cool to look at what the other racers did. So my favorite thing at these long races is to go back to 40th or 50th place, because sometimes the top end of these fields Mm -hmm. gets a lot deeper. So looking at 10th or 20th or the median finisher even can be a little bit deceiving. So this year, the 40th place finisher was around 17 hours. In past years, it's almost always 16 hours or around there. So it was clearly a very slow year due to the heat, due to the mud, due to everything. And Courtney set the course record, won by an extremely large amount, was, I believe, sixth overall, um, in, including beating most almost all the men. Uh, absolutely historic performance for her. It was so wild. And to put this into context, we were watching the live feed all day, yeah. and we saw Courtney finish, and we decided to go for a walk around our neighborhood with Leo. And our neighborhood is like, I feel like we're in like a Nordic, like Arctic tundra right now. Yeah. And so we were in our neighborhood, and our basically our stroller needs skis. It took forever. It takes forever to get Leo out there. By the time we got back, which was like an hour later, the second place female still had not finished yeah. yet. And it just goes to show how much of a class of her own Courtney is in. Yeah. Like, what a total badass racer. Yeah. I am so inspired. And they were the best women on the planet, you yeah. know, were there at this sport. And it just, it's incredible. And so do you think she's going to Western States? Do you think she sets the course record? I do, actually. I think, you know, the course record, Ella Greenwood's course record was set on not an incredibly hot year. And obviously heat makes a big difference at Western States. I think Courtney is so in a class of her own that even on a 102 degree day, she has a shot at the women's course record, which is exciting. Yeah, I can't wait to see her there. Um, Second for women getting the second golden ticket was Nicole Bitter. Super inspirational because at Javelina 100, the last golden ticket race in the United States, she finished third um, just out of that spot. So she came back and punched her ticket with a fantastic performance where she moved up through the field and then really put her stamp on it. So good for her. And on the men's race, Jeff Colt had a phenomenal day. So he was building off last year. He won Black Canyon 100K. This year, he threw down um, at this year's Bandera 100K. And he was sick leading into the race too. So his average, we went back and looked at his Strava. He was averaging something like 34 miles per week heading into this race and was able to, you know, rely on that really strong base that he's built. He was part of the world championship team in Thailand. So clearly, actually, I imagine some of the, like the heat training and the Thailand stimulus was still in his body for this. Yeah, and it really shows that last month, especially that ultras are weird, right? Like he's an incredible athlete and he's built up a ton over time, but in road marathons, if an athlete got sick and was only able to average 34 miles per week, they're not going to be having the world-class performance Jeff did. So, you know, it points out how this is so fun from training theory perspective, because we don't know exactly what sets people apart on any given day. Maybe this ended up being the perfect thing for him to taper down a little bit, or maybe he would have gone 20 or 30 minutes faster had he not. It's impossible to know. So whenever we talk about anything in here, we're kind of playing at those fun little margins. Do you think he's going to take his golden ticket? It's still on the table. I imagine he will. I have a vested interest in him not taking it. So I I want Jeff to be at Western States personally because he was 11th last year. I think he could podium this year, you know, given how everything he's shown. Well, he was 11th last year with COVID. Jeff Jeff just keeps getting sick before races and still is throwing down and crushing it. (laughs) It's incredible. Uh, But actually the reason we have the vested interest is because Canyon Woodward, swap athlete, who took out the race really fast is in third. So if Jeff doesn't take it, it rolls down to Canyon. And I'm excited to see what Canyon can do in Canyons. Yeah, that would be very, very fun. Uh, And then second man getting the last 
uh, spot was JP Giblin. It was very cool. Big swing for him. Knocked it out of the park. Can't wait to see what he does. Um, and then just a fun little personal reflection for us. Uh, seven swap athletes were in the top 10, including four of the top seven men. Um, and that was with it not being the, it was just a very tough day. Like, you know, half the field, I would say dropped out throughout the course of the race. So, um, you know, very cool, like little reflection moment for us of wanting our athletes not to perform well. Like it's not about that, more about taking big shots. So, you know, every year at these races, we try to encourage athletes to go and make themselves vulnerable, not because it's going to be the perfect day, Mm -hmm. but because that's where you learn. And all of those athletes and some of the ones that had tougher days went out and just put their soul onto the table. And that's what it's about. And I think one reason this race is hard outside of the humidity and the factors that we discussed too is because this is the start of the year. Yeah. Like this means that you have to train through the holidays. It means that you're tr- doing, you know, a training block in November and December, oftentimes when it's cold and snowy, especially in like, you know, the Midwest or Northeast or other other different parts of the, the country. So yeah. it's really cool to start the year off with this. Question for you. Oh. So humidity um, has an outsized, you know, role at Bandera. How do you recommend training athletes? So it was 72 in humidity. At Bandera. Yeah. So not necessarily like super hot, but the humidity at times is like 95, 100%. Do you think dry sauna versus wet sauna for preparing for the humidity? I think you're going to ask about how I would approach it personally, which is I would fake a GI bug and not start <laughs> because there's nothing I could do. Um, I would say dry sauna always mm-hmm. is beneficial because the it get, they get so much hotter because the water vapor prevents the heat from actually getting that high in a wet sauna. So even though the heat stress is high, the heat shock proteins aren't activated. And as we're going to get into a little bit, perhaps later, um, it could be the heat shock proteins, which cause some of the response to the hematological variables. So I would say dry sauna. What do you think? I was going to say dry, dry sauna as well. I think the heat shock proteins, there's a lot of different pathways. You know, it's not just you know, being acclimated to humidity. It's also being acclimated to the heat, the heat shock proteins. So I agree 100%. If athletes haven't done, you know, as they're coming in, they recognize, oh my gosh, oh crap, my race is going to be hot and humid and they haven't done anything. What I tell them too is, is like two to three sauna sessions, just that alone can be helpful for heat shock proteins. Or hot bath. Yeah, exactly. Canyon did a few sessions of hot bath and that's it. I I personally love the hot bath. That's my (laughs) method. After every run, I sit in the hot bath with a, a thing of kombucha and some cookies and I'm like all about it. A big vibrator. <laughs> it's like you're getting all, you, as a mom, you need to learn to multitask and that's what you're doing. Actually, the best gift that we've given each other is- <laughs> very excited to hear what you're saying. It's not that exciting. Okay. I feel like I, I should have followed with something a little bit more. Uh, this is pretty lame. Uh, <laughs> but the best gift that we've given each other is that after exercise, we extend each other like a 20 or 30 minute block yeah. to either do a hot bath or shower or just chill out after exercise. And it's really nice, like not walking in the door and being like, you're immediately on kid duty right away that you have that chance to like decompress and shower and hot bath or sauna or you know, do things in the bathtub that you're describing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It'll be interesting as he gets older, because right now he's still kind of like a house plant that poops in that he just kind of stationary and excretes. Um, it'll be a little different. I think as he gets moving on, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a bonus training stimulus because I get to play with him, which is totally good for agility and strength. I'm so excited to do all the sports with him. It's going to be so fun. Okay. Uh, training topic. This comes from a tweet and a podcast question that was sent in via Patreon. So I'll read the tweet first. This is from Zachary Ornegos, um, an athlete we coach. I crossed 3,300 miles for the year this morning and checked my logs to see how many days I ran. If I run tomorrow, this, this was written in December 30th, 267 days. That's 98 days off this year. I PR'd in the mile, the 3K, and the marathon, running my second OTQ. He ran a 216 marathon at CIM and won an ultra relay race, the speed project 
project as well. Rest equals success. What a great tweet. Yeah. I love that he's highlighting the rest. And also like, that's a baller number of PRs this year. I'm, I was so excited for Zach. Yeah. It's especially cool because he's a dad. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an incredible teacher. He's a coach. Um, he does a lot in life, which is probably one of the reasons that this approach is the optimal one for him because he's already filling up his stress bucket. So adding more stress is not going to be beneficial. And he's been training for a long time too. Like, it's not like he's, you know, just getting into training. And at that point, it's kind of like resetting your watch. It's a lot easier to get PRs (laughs) in that early on process. He's been going at this for a long time. Yeah, including collegially at the top level at Michigan. Exactly. So this leads us to this podcast question. Um, This comes from Patreon. And I love this. I thought it was really important to highlight on our main podcast. My question is about the science of the day off. The elite interviews with the goats of our sport, most do not take a day off every week. Do you think that they would be better off taking a day off every week? Does a runner have leeway with taking the day off when weather is awful or they have a busy day planned? Or does science say always taking Monday off or the same day off of a seven-day week? Yeah, such an amazing question. So this comes from our Patreon where we do big, deep dives on bunches of topics. In fact, this week we did a big, deep dive on death. Uh, We'll touch on that briefly. Um, And other controversial things. We get into the the little more interesting stuff there sometimes. So patreon.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. And also we do science corners there of posts every week. It's a really fun, informal, back and forth conversation. I love this week, you actually just surprised put in the conversation on death. I had no (laughs) idea that what was coming. You of course had like very articulate and beautiful answers. And it was fun to think about, but we get some surprise questions in there every once in a while. Yeah, it's so fun. Um, So the big idea, getting back to this question, is that rest is not needed for adaptation. But on the flip side, it does not hurt adaptation. So essentially rest days are almost an insurance policy that you're putting in on yourself. And it's, I think um, it's one place I've evolved a ton as a coach over time as a result. I have too. And I think it's interesting that this question referenced the GOAT interviews that we've yeah. done. So we've, you know, we've talked to Adam Peterman, we've talked to Killian, we've talked to Courtney, we've talked to Claire. And these athletes take a, a broad array of approaches to rest days. But I think it's actually curious coming from the goats in sport because they could probably have, they could afford to have a little bit less, like a little bit more lenient insurance policies because they are so talented and they've been genetically selected in some ways to be the goats in our sport. And so I think in that case, like insurance is less important to them than it is to the everyday athlete. And so I think we take a broad range of approaches on in swap on rest days based off of an athlete's like genetic potential, even based off of mentality too. I know I have some athletes that, you know, perhaps Perhaps they're, you know, they needed just a little bit more of that, like accountability. And yeah. those are certainly those athletes where I'm like, we need a Monday rest day, yeah, but it really varies. The yeah. psychological side matters too. But on the flip side, we're talking about some of these goats. Um, the goat in speed gating, skating, Nils Vanderpool, would notoriously do a 5-2 schedule where he would train so, so hard for five days and then take two days totally off and then just go play with his friends, essentially. Um, and by play, I mean like clubbing and stuff. Um, and it points out that a lot of different approaches work. And it's a tough point in science because essentially what we're doing is we're seeing what works for people and then validating it post hoc, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily the best way to do it. And so um, that's one thing we've tried to constantly constantly self-evaluate as coaches because when we started, we would do Monday rest day or Tuesday rest day or whatever for almost everyone. And I've gotten a little bit more flexible with it, but in very specific circumstances, again, because it doesn't hurt to take a rest day. Um, and as a result, like why make the risk if an athlete does have risk? So for Zach Ronelos, he his total would be 26.8% of his year was resting, which obviously is a lot. But when we quantified it, most of our athletes, like our professional athletes we coach, do about 23% of the year resting. And so... And, and they've succeeded at the top level. So it just points out that different approaches work. And when you say that you've been more flexible yeah. with rest days, I have been as well. But 
I generally use that for cross training days. It's yeah. very rare that I have an athlete running seven days per week. Definitely. So usually it's like very easy, controlled cross training um, with heart rate caps and just making sure the athlete is feeling good and adapting to training. And they're also just not like, you know, pushing it and sending it in other areas of life. But I think it's helpful to break down the 23% of yeah. rest days and how those occur. So if you think about it, and this is like the general context of how it occurs across the year. If you have a weekly rest day, that's 52 days per year. Yeah. If you have three days off for like random injuries and say that happens in like three different training blocks. Which is a pretty low number. Yeah, that's pretty low. Um, and it's also low to have only three of those blocks. That's yeah. nine days per year. If you just take bonus rest days for stress, life, you know, your, your baby might be sick, you might be sick, something happens. Chafing from the vibrator. Everything. Oh yeah, oh exactly. Five days, <laughs> five days off. And then many rest days after hard blocks. Um, so, you know, hard racing, we often give athletes two, three days off, sometimes longer, five, six days for yeah. ultras. I think that it probably adds up to 20 days. And that's where we're getting that 23% um, for most of our pro athletes. Yeah. But that being said, more and more, I've started to see, okay, those can be running rest days, as Megan said, but maybe some cross training at times could be beneficial. And it gets back to maybe some of the benefits of not taking a rest day at all. So this is to address how the goats can do this and succeed so much. One is the routine element, the psychological side Megan talked about. Two is added aerobic strain. You know, it does add up. If you're doing 30 to 60 minutes for 52 more days per year Mm -hmm. than everybody else, that being said, how much it adds up is a question, especially when you're talking about the possible detriments of pushing just a little bit too far. And we'll get into that in a second. Yeah. Um, There also could be some metabolic changes, like perhaps aerobic metabolism improves if you don't take any day off, though that's not um, found in the literature. Blood volume and cardiac benefit could be another one because there is some science that blood volume can contract with one full day off for some people, though it's very small. It's like a very, very, very small percentage. But maybe it adds up over time. I don't know. And that can be countered with a sauna, actually. So if we, I often have athletes do sauna on rest days because that counters some of the blood volume losses that occur from a rest day. Yeah, and then possibly neuromuscular variables or epigenetics or something like that. Those are totally open questions. But counter that with some of the benefits of rest days. Glycogen recovery, so you're getting more food in. Sex hormones, we talk about this all the time. You know, um, testosterone, estrogen, all of that needs to be balanced. And that is primarily related to the role of cortisol Mm -hmm. in athletics. So um, rest days are lower cortisol. And then maybe the biggest overarching thing that's a little complicated is adaptation more generally. Um, I think rest days are more adaptation insurance where if you push the stress just a little bit too hard, you might be doing all this work and not adapting to it, in which case the training you're doing can become self-destructive, whether that's through injury or just stagnation. So why not? take a rest day, or at least from impact, um, if that is the type of risk that you're facing. And I think one thing that you didn't highlight on there was the psychological benefit yeah. of rest days too. I mean, oftentimes I give athletes Monday rest days because it's a great day to get up in the morning, get all the work done that you need to be done and, you know, really feel ahead for the week. Yeah. I personally love that. But I also, I also have athletes, you know, this, this questioner was asking about, is it on, you know, do you always have Monday rest days? Yeah. Sometimes I have athletes on 10 day schedules or 14 day schedules for rest days. And it really just truly varies across the athlete. Me personally, right now, I'm kind of on a 10 day schedule yeah. because it's working well for my work. It's working well for my training. And I think it doesn't always have to be consistent across training blocks either. Yeah. You know, you can take seven day cycle, sometimes 14 day cycle and just really mix it up. Yeah. I, rest days are kind of like salt in a meal that you're cooking. It's like, you can probably get by without any salt, but it might not taste great. <laughs> but if you use too much salt, obviously not good either. It's sprinkle it on liberally, but within reason. Um, and basically what we're, we're trying to acknowledge actually a place where we have changed. And so, um, you know, these goats, what they often do, it's not that they never take rest days. They just sprinkle them in when they need them. And so I've started giving athletes a little bit more leeway to move those around, to mix in some light biking or elliptical or something if they have no downsides. And you can consider that too out there. Like we love rest days. We're 
we're the ultimate fans, obviously, and you know we've gotten shit for that. But it's not necessarily a dogmatic approach like it might have been when we first started. I'm also curious about that 23% number that we came up for our pro athletes. Yeah. And I think oftentimes you can get that by one rest day a week and by some of those other flex numbers that I talked about and when you do the math on that. But I think another approach, and I've seen you know a lot of pro athletes like Courtney do this, yeah. um, Adam Peterman mentioned doing this, is you know perhaps not taking that rest day, but taking really focused off seasons yeah. as that insurance against making sure you know your sex hormones are optimized, making sure your cortisol is optimized, et cetera. So I think, you know, there's kind of this two different classes or two different buckets of, you know, a more like intense focus on rest days or a more intense yeah. focus on dedicated off season. It's a good point. And you usually don't have, uh, like neither, like athletes are doing one or the other the problem becomes they're goats because they're really, really good at baseline. They're so talented. Exactly. Like most athletes take a month or two off or, you know, don't run. It's really hard to return as you've seen with pregnancy. Oh my gosh. Well, I took, I took a like 14 months off, yeah, yeah, but yeah. yes. <laughs> but it's exacerbating something that we see a lot in coaching. Like if you're spending three months to get back the month you took off, then you spend a lot of your year kind of spinning your wheels. So. Also, it's incredibly frustrating. That's yeah. where the running as heinous quote comes in. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um, so basically have fun with it, experiment with what works for you, but always err on the side of being careful and being loving to your body. Basically rest days are a good chance to practice loving yourself a little bit, not with the vibrator in the bathtub, but more <laughs> in a general spiritual sense. <laughs> okay, let's get into a really interesting discussion on core values. Um, this is just something we wanted to touch base on to start 2023, how we're trying to approach not just this year, but always. And especially because the podcast has taken off so much, explain a little bit of where we're coming from and why we talk about things the way we do. I think it's really helpful as you start any year. I mean, I, well, actually, I think it's a helpful exercise to think about your core values anytime. Yeah. It, does, it doesn't have to be the start of 2023. It's just convenient to do that. And it was extra convenient because my mom was here yeah. this week. She came out. Actually, it was incredibly kind. My mom came out for my first full week of work <laughs> and watched Leo for us and made us realize that we do need a nanny. Yes. She was so incredibly helpful. I was like, yeah, we definitely need this Ooh, in our lives. We definitely need help. It's way too much. <laughs> um, but she was really helpful in telling us like, we were kind of struggling with something together and she was really helpful in telling us like, think about your core values. Yeah. Whenever you're struggling with something, return back to those core values and make sure that you're aligning with that in how you deal with something or how you make decisions yeah. or really any other process in life. Yeah. So it was 5 a.m. I'm already at work on my computer and dealing with something and she's right there. And the coolest thing about your mom is she's brilliant in a general sense. Obviously, she's your mom. You had her <laughs> But then also, she's the most emotionally intelligent person I've ever met. And when she said that, it just absolutely clicked for me. It's like, okay, core values. And we thought it might be helpful for you to hear ours, not because you should have ours, but because it might help you think about what yours are and always touching base with those. So, um, Megan, you're going to make a bunch of heart rocks that have these words written on them. And then we're just going to always touch them before we make some big decision. I love it. It's like the belief sign that we have above our door that we tap yeah. before we go out. Now we're going to have heart rocks that we uh, also smash before we go out the door. <laughs> smash those heart rocks. Okay. So want to actually read before getting to the three of them, um, and the email from Patreon on death, not because it is one of our core values. We're not a uh, goth out here, but because I think it's a relevant um, grounding for what we're going to say. And I think it's structured. This is, we had this conversation on Friday. This was the surprise discussion that I was brought yeah. into on the Patreon podcast. And I think it makes you think about your core values. Um, and we're also reading a book right now by Rob Delaney. Yeah. Um, and he's a comedian. He's uh, he's an outstanding actor. I just, I really like him as yeah. a person. He's, he starred in the uh, show Catastrophe and also wrote it, which is great. Um, and his book is about his two-year-old son dying of cancer. Um, and we're reading it. 
as we have a baby boy uh, and have gone through all these health issues. And there's a reason for that, you know, and we'll get into that with this question. So here it is. Another year down, thus one year closer to our last year. Uh-oh, here we go. I've been an ICU nurse since 2006, and my thoughts on death, or rather my own death, have vacillated from decade to decade. In my 20s, I always thought I wanted my demise to be quick, painless, and no nonsense. In my 30s, I wish more for a terminal diagnosis, where I could say my goodbyes and soak in my life moment to moment. Now in my mid-40s, the pendulum has swung back to hoping for anything sudden with minimal suffering. This may be because I feel like the people I most value know how I feel about them, so there's no need for a prolonged death. Where do you all stand on your own ideal but realistic death? <laughs> I think we can all agree to skip the unrealistic dying in your sleep at age 100 with an intact bot- mind and body. Has your outlook changed because Leo is in this world? Nothing like a nice feel-good conversation to start the year. Woohoo. So what would you decide on this topic? Uh, terminal. Something that allows me to think about it a little bit more. And um, the reason is just the idea of memento mori. You know, remember that you too shall die. Uh, not because, like, I think it gives you any great wisdom, but because... I think that that's life. Everyone out there is dealing with this stress and this uncertainty, whether they know it directly or not. And that's what I come back to with saying like a terminal diagnosis because it's like, okay, right now we already have a terminal diagnosis. I was just going to say that life is a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. Leo, who is two months old, has a terminal diagnosis eventually. Yeah. And yeah. we just put it, it's so uncertain. It's so off in the distance that it's okay. And you can just kind of forget about it. Um, but what if that's a year from now? <laughs> Memento Mori gets absolutely fucking stacked all at once. And I don't know what exactly lies there. I think reading Rob Delaney's book, there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of pain and suffering too. But that's life, you know? And everyone's dealing with that, which kind of gets back to what our core values are at all. Well, speaking of Rob Delaney's book, someone mentioned yeah. to me, they're like, why would you read that when you have a two-month-old? <laughs> Isn't that like something that's like really hard to read? And it's actually the exact opposite. Yeah. Like I think, you know, it is inevitably challenging to have a, a two-month-old. I mean, he's kind of a houseplant, but it is still challenging at times because, oh, sure. you know, we're up at all hours of the night. You know, it actually, it just makes me appreciate those moments that are hard because it's yeah. like, this is part of the process. This is living. This is so cool. Yeah. He, uh, he, we had him in a, um, we have a docket tot. Yeah. We put it at the center of our dinner table the other night with my <laughs> family and he projectile vomited like a fountain in the middle of our dinner table <laughs> off, off the docket tot. But it was one of those moments where I was like, this is life. Like this is parenthood. And I think Rob Delaney's book makes me lean into that. It makes yeah. me lean into the hard moments. And so I a hundred percent agree with you about the terminal diagnosis because it makes you, I mean, recognizing that we all have terminal diagnoses, but the shorter timelines yeah. make you just like really appreciate those moments. And for me personally, I would just do some bad shit, crazy comedy that <laughs> might normally get me canceled. And yeah. if I'm going to be terminal, it doesn't matter. I like it. So Leo's good for memento mori. He's also good for memento pukey. Remember <laughs> that you too shall puke. Um, and so that gets to the first one. I mean, Leo's name, love each other. Uh, the first one is love. And what we try to think about is that while we have view this death, this quote abyss, as I love that word so much, and try to come to this conclusion, other people don't. And that's okay. Um, and the most you can do in this journey is give them as much compassion as you can. And so we want to spread love, uh, and that this is, this podcast is our love language. It's been so much fun and it's been so much fun to spread that love. And I think spread that love to people where sometimes it's harder. Like, I think we all have those people in life where it's really hard to spread love to them. And we certainly have that. And I think it's a process. It's almost like the process of, of grieving. There's multiple different steps and perhaps spreading love to someone that it's like not an obvious, like, 
answer to do so is like going through those stages. Like, you know, there's certain people right now that I would, you know, rather have them be eaten by a sewer clown than to spread love. But eventually I'll get there. And I think that's something that's really helpful is knowing that love is at the end of the pathway, even if there's multiple different steps to get there. The good thing is the sewer clown will get their recommended daily value of protein for the day, (laughs) you know, because like the sewer clown might not have access to whey protein. So that would be really helpful for them. Um, But yeah, I, I think we could all aspire to like this Buddhist ideal or any spiritual idea, you know, this is what Jesus talked about too, of loving someone that harms you, but it takes time, but keep recentering on that. Right. And so if you're out there listening to us because you enjoy us, we love you, obviously. Like, I think that's been really clear with everything we've ever done in life. But if you're out there and you don't like us, we love you too. Um, it's a little bit different and it takes us a little more time to get there, but we want to be really clear on that, that, um, we love you. We want you to be successful. We want you to be happy. Um, we also just want to make sure the sewer com might get some protein at first. <laughs> yeah. And so the second one here is kindness. Um, this, this just relates similar to love. Um, you never know what people are going through, but then also different people can take different facts and come to different conclusions. And so giving them the space to do that, I think is really important within reason. As long as someone isn't harmed in a very specific way, like racism obviously is not a place where this applies, but training theory, (laughs) podcast likes, things like that. Totally a place where kindness is still the answer as long as someone isn't, you know, hurt. And I think the fact of the process of coming to different conclusions based off of an initial set of facts totally gets the idea that we all have like different backgrounds. And I think kindness is recognizing and getting curious about those backgrounds and like understanding the origin points and finding love, you know, along that existing process, no matter how hard it is. Yeah. So in, in athlete logs, they talk about relationships a lot and we joke a lot about relationships here, but what I always say, and I I think this has come true within the relationship. I've seen and some of the therapists I've talked to have agreed too, is that kindness doesn't fade. Everything else in a relationship changes, right? So like it's all evolved for us and it'll evolve more and it'll be totally different. But like the kindness we have for each other is one thing that matters. So think about that in your relationships. Also think about it in who you associate with more generally, because even though you can love people, you don't want to let like super negative energy into your life long-term, I think. Um, and then our final one here, it's just fun. <laughs> we just want to make it fun. And that creates, is a lot of things for us. It's creating, it's science, it's humor, supporting others. It's crushing bitches. Crushing bitches. <laughs> yeah. Especially like with the science. We love science and we want to bring that to you. We want to make it so damn sexy that you can't resist it. We just want it to be so fun. Well, science should be fun and sexy. Actually, yeah. in a lot of my research, like at Stanford, I think about how to translate research. And if science is boring, people aren't going to want to hear it. Yeah. And I think you can, I think there is a way, and I hope that we strive to do this, that science can be sexy and fun and you can still maintain the integrity and the foundation and Definitely. the hardcore intellectual nature of the science while making it fun and sexy because who wants to listen to boring science? <laughs> yeah, so true. And so uh, we want everyone else to have fun to, no matter what that means for you. Um, life is not a zero sum game. We hope whoever you are out there listening, that nothing but the best awaits you. And we are here for you in that. If you want to become a coach, we will try to help you become a coach. If you want to, uh, start your own podcast, we'll try to help that. Um, just know we are here. Like life is complicated. We are all dying and what we do, however we're, you know, spending our time in that meantime is valid. Um, as long as you're not hurting others. So hell yeah, we love you all. And Thank you for letting us do that. Well, I'm glad that you highlighted the complexity of it because sometimes I think people hear like love and kindness and fun and they're like, oh, those are simplistic life outlooks. But I think they can actually be really complex when they're grounded in things like mortality and science and like deeper understandings of things. And we certainly have a long ways to go in terms of like how we think about the world and how we think about science and how we process things. But they are for us grounded in more complex nature, even though sometimes people are like, oh, those are like saccharine or sweet. But there's a lot more that, you know, I think the ultimate truth and the ultimate understanding is finding love. Yeah, 
I think the smartest thing anyone can do is to see the complexity and make a dumb joke. And say, fuck it. Yeah, say, <laughs> fuck it. Okay, uh, and on that note, we made the most fun playlist. This is our gift to you to start 2023. It's called Love and Kindness and Hill Strides. We're gonna link to it. It's on Spotify free for everyone. It's about four hours of epic shit. It is so long. So we were aiming for like a two hour playlist and in classic Megan and David fashion, we just couldn't decide. We're like, we love all these songs. These are so great. How many, I mean, actually I think we narrowed it down. I think it's about like three hours and 45 minutes. You could run an ultra. I mean, how many miles do you think Jim Walmsley could run in that time? Uh, Jim Walmsley breaks the laws of physics. So probably run like 40 miles in that time, right? Oh yeah. More than that. Probably 45. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's absolutely like remarkable what he can do in that playlist. But for most of us, it's just a really fun way to spend the day. Put it on shuffle if you want. Um, it has all different types of genres, has alternative, it has pop punk, it has rap, it has pop, has some 80s music, and it has dot 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 country music. Those two country songs are definitely for Leo. He yeah. gets his like inner, I feel like his like inner cognitive enhancement gets boosted by country music, but I actually like the country songs too. Yeah, it's they're, strange. They're, they're so really good. good. They're so good. And our goal is to make you feel that love and swag while you're out there training. Um, my favorites on there, my two favorite songs that I wanted to give a call out to are one, uh, the Great Unknown from Jukebox the Ghost. This ends the playlist. It's a different vibe than the rest of it, which is very much geared towards running faster. This one is nice and uh, reflective. I think I listened to it 18 times yesterday. <laughs> it was definitely going in the bathtub. It was so good. Yeah, so here are the lyrics, uh, or some of them. Keep your head up. Don't take your eyes off the road. Know you're never going to change by doing what you're told. You don't want to let yourself down, so don't be scared to stand out. There's a thousand voices saying the time is now. So make the leap into the great unknown, uh, everyone out there, and listen to that song while you're doing it. I love that. My personal favorite, actually. So we have that one to close the podcast. Yeah. One of my personal favorites starts the podcast, which is San Francisco by the Mowgli's. And I feel like it just like fits this idea of love so well. Maybe it's, it's not like the perfect song if you yeah. want to like throw down a really fast smile, but it makes me feel like all warm and fuzzy inside. Fun fact, this was my most played song of 2022. And I am extremely into music while I train. So this has been vetted in a lot of <laughs> workouts, like so many workouts. Has it made you feel good on Hill Strides? Oh, so good. It makes me so fast. It's, it's a good Hillshire song. Okay, these are the lyrics, and this is why I personally love it. It's, I've been in love with love and the idea of something binding us together. You know that love is strong enough. Yeah. I, it was so hard for me to resist singing that, but you really don't want to hear me singing. <laughs> Megan, you actually are a great singer. In fact, um, get a superstar on there. You hit the Maya notes so well in that song. When you sing that song, it is like angel singing. It is incredible. I love Ghetto Superstar. It's so amazing. Actually, Leo and I recently have been vibing. Snoop Dogg has a wheels on the bus rendition <laughs> and it's Leo and I are feeling it. Yeah. That's our best bump in time So together. we've made four different podcasts and we've heard from people. I mean, they have so many listens on these podcasts. People really like it. It might be the thing that we do that helps performance the most. Uh, so check it out. There's actually a lot of studies to back this up. We're not going to get into them too much today, but in particular, a 2018 study in the Journal of Strength and Re- Conditioning Research had 17 runners complete a one point five mile time trial once with music um, and once without. And basically the runners with music had reduced perceived exertion, averaged about 10 seconds faster with music and had a lower heart rate. Granted, those changes weren't statistically significant, but I think it does show there's probably some physiological nudge for some athletes sometimes. And there's pretty much, there's a lot of inklings across the research, like looking at music and the effects on perceived exertion, looking at the effects of performance. What I think is most interesting though, there was actually a review um, from 1997, going all the way back to yeah. 1997. I was seven. They were listening to some Tupac back then. Oh no, they were looking to, listening to, uh, now that's what I call music, top hits. Oh yeah, that was probably the first year of it. I know, I've been into those recently. They've been they're, fun. They're really good. Miami from Will Smith, totally vibing on that <laughs> song. Um, but anyways, this was in the Journal of Sport and Behavior. And they found actually that music really helps with reducing perceived exertion, but also just like enhancing and 
enjoyment activities, enjoyment levels of activity and also adherence to physical activity. And I think that's the biggest thing is, I don't know if it's necessarily about the RPE or the performance. I think music just helps some people get out the door. And that by itself, I think is a big enough excuse to use music appropriately and smartly while you train. Yeah. And we said fun earlier as one of our core values. Running is sometimes not very fun, but if you're listening to Miami by Will Smith, it's a little bit more fun. Uh, so generally the studies find that it's more beneficial at low to moderate intensities, not high intensities, which makes sense. You don't want to dissociate from the activity you're doing. So it's not something that we have athletes do in races or even use all the time, but man, it's good for getting in those aerobic miles. Oh, it's so great. And be careful with it on the trails. I mean, I feel like the, you know, the, the headphones, the bone conduction headphones that allow you to hear other stuff um, outside of your music, really, really helpful. Not everyone loves music yeah. either. We totally understand that. But you know what? If you struggle to get out the door, turn up Miami by Will Smith on volume 100. <laughs> it helps a lot. Yeah. This needs to be at the top volume. Actually, I wrote an article on music way back in the day, like in 2016. Oh, it got so much shit. It got so much shit. So we understand it. I had no idea it was controversial because I'm like, how do you run high volume with out sometimes listening to music. It's so much more fun. Um, And one of the comments was actually, I hope David gets eaten by a bear when he doesn't hear the bear while listening to music. (laughs) And they were serious. Well, I hope they get eaten by a clown sewer. (laughs) Yes. Or uh, a man, clown in the sewer. A clown in the sewer. A sewer clown. A sewer clown. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, a clown sewer, man. That's some nightmare fuel. We need to put that into one of those AI image generators. Um, Okay. Do you want to do a hemoglobin mass review or do you want to do the art and science of easy running? Let's do the, what do you think? Let's do the art and science of disease running. Let's do that. And then we'll come back to hemoglobin mass if we have time. If not, we'll do it next week. Hemoglobin mass is really interesting. And it it relates actually to some of the sauna talk that we had earlier. Yeah. So this comes from a Patreon question as well. Uh, Here it is. Easy runs over hills aiming for zone two in a five zone model. Is it okay to run uphill in zone three, so higher heart rate than aerobic threshold, or should I shuffle slash hike to stay in zone two? Downhill, is it okay to run in zone one or should I put the hammer town to stay a bit in zone two? So in other words, what this questioner is asking is they have an idea of what their heart rate should be on these like everyday easy runs. Um, Do they need to just keep the heart rate there and peg it there and that's the way to get adaptations? Or is easy running something that's a little bit more complex and artistic? And that's what we're going to address today. I really appreciate that you called it the art and science of easy running. Yeah. I get questions all the time about from athletes about what should my easy run pace be? Yeah. And the answer is it's really a broad spectrum. And it's hard to nail down. It's hard to give this exact you know recommendation each day. And it's really about working together as a coach and athlete and understanding both the art and the science together and recognizing the complexity of the fact that like, it's not always going to be a single pace. Yeah, and to a little step back, one thing we've been doing on Patreon actually is taking workout files and giving people their zones because it's something I deeply love. I comb their Strava data. Also, that's very kind of you. Oh, no. It takes work. It's amazing. It's so fun. I love it. Numbers, they're really cool. Um, So a good general overview of this is we like to use lactate threshold heart rate. So a heart rate that you can hold for generally around an hour. It's pretty high. It's a little higher than a lot of people think usually because we're talking race settings. Um, So let's say an average athlete that's like 20 or five or 30 might have a 175 lactate threshold heart rate. Mm-hmm. This varies a lot based on genetics, but in general, that's kind of the number I see mostly. This would mean that zone one is below 140-ish. Zone two goes all the way up into the low 150s. Zone three is a broad range from like mid 150s to mid 160s uh, or zone yeah, zone three goes almost all the way up to mid-160s. And then zone four is from mid-160s up to that lactate threshold heart rate. So it just gives you a feel when we're talking about these numbers, what we mean, um, if you have any feel for that, like with your own numbers. I think the numbers are helpful too. And oftentimes for athletes, I break it down in terms of how you should feel. Yeah. Um, so, you know, zone one, you should feel like you can speak in sentences. No resistance, really. You can speak in paragraphs, no yeah. no resistance. You can nose breathe if you like that. <laughs> zone two, I think also nose breathing is common. But it's probably a little tougher. It starts to get a little bit harder. Sentences start to become just a little bit 
more clipped. Um, and then, you know, as you work into zone three, that's where you start, might start feeling a little bit of resistance. Yeah. Um, you know, words become a little bit harder Breath to come rate by. Breath really starts to pick up because you're burning a lot more glycogen, which is the, you need to ex- exhale that carbon dioxide much more rapidly and, and, and get more oxygen in your system. You're really tuning in to Miami by Will Smith. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the, these are the, we either give like heart rate references or, you know, breathing sentences related references or music references. Yeah. Yeah. I think zone one, it's a little bit of Miami. Zone two, kind of Miami. Zone three, oh my God, Miami hits you so hard. And then in zone four, it starts to get too hard for Miami again. And uh, zone five is sewer clown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> zone five, just turn it off and go for it. Um, so I'm going to read actually from an article I wrote on this exact subject um, last year. We're going to just do a few things. This is much like our Science Corner episodes that we've done that are really popular and our Science Corner posts on Patreon. Uh, go follow that on Patreon to see these each week. The inverted view of easy paces is what we're going to start with here. So before I get to the reading, uh, this means that as an athlete starts out running, often their easy paces get faster and faster and faster, and then they improve with that. Mm -hmm. But then if they stay in running long-term, their easy paces get slow again. Um, So as an athlete gets becomes a professional runner, you'll see them being much more comfortable with slow, easy paces. Um, and it gets to some of the complications of training theory more generally. And you reference the idea of an athlete getting to become a professional runner. And I think yeah. you see the impacts of the inverted view of easy paces most evidently in the collegiate system. Yeah. So I think oftentimes collegiate systems, you know, men's and like women's teams are going out there and pushing the easy runs too hard. Yeah. And I think that works for a set period of time. You get these gains that happen, but eventually you hit that wall, you push yeah. that wall. And I think sometimes that leads to the collapse of professional runners. And I'd be really curious, like if we had easier runs in the NCAA system, you know, across collegiate athletes, would we have, you know, stronger professional athletes or at least, you know, I would say, I think you probably see it most reflected in the number of OTQ marathons we have. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a great point in, you know, avoiding that physiological sewer clown is something that's really important. I think that there's a balance there though. And that's what we're going to be getting into today. So here's from the article. The inverted U describes how athletes' easy paces often get faster as they start out. That pace progression can be a great thing. Being able to run faster all the time is a good proxy for fitness at first. But here's the hardest conundrum that many athletes face. As they travel up the inverted U and their easy paces get faster and faster, often they'll have massive breakthroughs. The problem is that is what is rewarded as a runner as, as they build up can be the same thing that is viciously punished later. As an athlete starts, particularly at younger ages, they're often aerobically limited. Faster easy runs are major aerobic stresses with tons of time around and above aerobic threshold. That would be Z3. That aerobic tide can rise so rapidly that it brings all the running economy ships with it, no matter what effort that's at. But there's an iceberg ahead. Eventually, the initial aerobic gains are mostly grabbed and only marginal aerobic gains are left. This is anyone that's been in the sport for five plus years. Now the risk-reward calculus of those faster easy runs shifts. They can cause a significant stress buildup, leading to background chronic stress that accumulates over months and years. It pulls away from effective workouts and starts slowing down adaptation rates. Sometimes the iceberg rips into the hull. Terrible injury cycles and or endocrine slash nervous system overtraining can sink once promising careers. Okay, as always, David, that was an outstanding piece of writing. Also, your reading was great. I feel like we've both been working on our reading recently yeah. because we've been reading to Leo a ton. <laughs> and I personally read to him upside down. Yeah. So it makes podcast reading a lot easier when you're just reading on the on the front of the page. You know what I love? You got a lot of physiology books to read to Leo. You're teaching about like 
molecular uh, chem- chemistry right away. I'm teaching about angiogenesis. Actually, I so I went to the used bookstore here in Boulder yeah. and the books are for me. I got a bunch of science books <laughs> and I just like really want to learn about like koalas or yeah. like giant squid or things like that. And so Leo's just kind of staring at me and I'm like reading to him about koalas. It's great. It's so damn fun. Um, you know, we saw this in person uh, at your Duke team that you ran with. The easy paces on that team were so fast across the board and most of those athletes are not running now. Um, I remember some striking experiences um, seeing just how fast they ran. It was insane. And I don't think I fully understood at the time too. I mean, I was a culprit in that. I was constantly yeah. half-stepping people, you know, to make the easy paces go faster. And fortunately, I recognized that like pretty early on in my career that this was not going to be productive for me. Yeah. But I think it really does in the NCAA system, it really like, you know, prevents the, the you know, the number of professional runners that we have or the number of OTQ marathoners, I think is the yeah. area that we see it most relevant. But I think it's interesting though, because I think, you know, you can take this and say, okay, well, I'm going to keep all of my easy running super easy. Or write it pegged at some exact number, like, like right aerobic below threshold. aerobic threshold. Yeah. Exactly. But I think that's reductive because like, you know, if you're spending a lot of time in zone one, you're missing out on a lot of those gains that can happen, you know, in zone two, in zone three. And you think about it, like aerobically, you're going to get a little bit more of a bang for your buck. Yeah. Biomechanically, you know, it's a great adaptation because if you just keep running your easy runs really slow, especially if you're not doing a lot of like, you know, workouts and faster turnover to go with it, you're just going to get slower. And so I think it becomes a nuanced conversation because like, yes, you don't want to run your easy runs too fast all the time, but you also don't want to just be chilling in zone one all the time either. Yeah. And I guess it really depends on context too. So like right now, for example, your your run today was not in zone one. No, gosh, no. Yeah. Yeah. We're coming back. But the point is, could you blunt force via aerobic adaptations in zone one and low zone two, get back to where you were. And my contention would be no, that the athletes that excel off of this extreme focus on easy training only, like with no um, room for pushing up hills a little more or whatever, have almost always been fast before, mm-hmm. like in recent history. So they're just tapping into that speed. Um, I think it ends up being like, okay, to get comfortable running at steady efforts you sometimes just need to push into steady sometimes when you feel good. And give yourself a lot of like adaptation recovery to be able to do so. So like for yeah. me, I haven't run in 14 months. Yeah. So coming back right now, if I want to stay in zone one for my easy pace, it's going to be like five plus minutes off of my normal marathon effort yeah. um, or, or normal marathon pace. And that's really slow. I think it would take a long time <laughs> for me to come back to normal pace. You know, if I'm constantly running five plus minutes over my marathon pace, you know, when I'm like traditionally fit. And so I've got to push it a little bit. Like yeah. some of my easy runs might even be in zone four at yeah. this point because I'm so unfit. And it applies to athletes that are talking about hills, especially like if you slow down to where you're walking every uphill, because that's what keeps you in zone one, you're never gonna get better at running uphills. And I think that that's really striking. Um, but that's contrasted by the fact that at the start of runs, your lactate levels are much higher. You need to clear those out at first. Also glycolysis when you're it can be self-perpetuating. So if your heart rate goes really high, it might stay high. Um, so still keep your beginning of your runs easy. Do most of your runs in zone one and zone two. But when you feel good, you can let that free fly, flag fly a little bit. And if you monitor your heart rate during easy runs, you'll know that sometimes there is heart rate drift. Yeah. And heart rate drift is actually okay over the course of an easy run. It just d- depends on the context of it. it. depends on how much heart rate drift you're having. But to prevent a lot of heart rate drift, I think really focusing on that first like 20 minutes, very easy. Yeah. Letting, you know, making sure that you're not like immediately hitting into glycolysis, immediately spiking your lactate. And then from there, you can start to work into yeah. some faster easy running. Yeah, and let, another example. So this is with someone that is much more in the thick of it. Um, after the season, you know, I had a really strong racing season and I was transitioning to more road running as it got really snowy here. Um, on the first run I did at 630 pace in our backyards, 
which shouldn't be incredibly stressful for me, my average heart rate ended up being 159 or something. Um, and the problem is like, okay, I had already, I had done perfect balanced training because I'd been doing so many workouts in the context of that build. And my heart rate was still that high and it, because it was just so not, it was such a novel stimulus for me. My body wasn't used to it. It took a week or two. It took, you know, adapting my form took to getting used to it. But then after a while, heart rate dropped down into the low 140s, high 130s mm-hmm. at the same pace. And the fitness, meanwhile, was probably better from like a pure, if you did physiological measurements on me before. It's just my mechanical system was not equipped to handle it, nor was the way my body just you know, worked in zone three. So points out that there's a little more leeway there and um, you got to be aware of that. From a practical standpoint, how would you structure this for an athlete? So um, I often tell athletes, <laughs> I'm asking you a question and I'm answering it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pulling a David. I love it. <laughs> so for athletes, it's like, how do you structure this and how do you give guidelines about where do you do like very, very easy running, focusing on recovery and yeah. adaptation? And then where do you allow athletes to start, you know, working up into like that aerobic threshold area a little bit more? So I tell athletes like Friday, amazing day to shuffle. Yeah. Sunday, you know, after like a Saturday long run, depends on the context of the week, depends on the context of like the long run back to back. Also an amazing day to do lower heart rate. So I, yeah. I generally say like two days a week, really important to focus on that, like zone one, zone two. So the other days it's okay to let that, you know, let that heart rate wander up a little bit, you know, let the body push a little bit more on uphills. Yeah. I would say maybe of all their easy running, which should be about 80% of training, 30 to 40% in zone one, maybe, uh, a, lower total for athletes that are coming back from pregnancy or, um, working on this for the first time and just developing, trying to build up volume. Um, and then of the other part of the other half of the easy running, um, about half and half too, like you can progress into zone three, not half and half, like, um, 10 to 20% of that can go into zone three. Um, but I, what I like most of all are four rules of easy running. Um, and this is the first one. The best easy run pacing involves a range of stimuli based on how an athlete feels. Uh, pretty simple, but just know that it's not uh, pegged, uh, you know, right at Z2 as the uh, listener asked. And just understanding that, yeah, that it's exactly, it's more complex in this process. Gifting, I call it gifting yourself a range of stimuli. That's, yeah. that's like the quote phrase that I use to describe to athletes. The second point I love, um, the second point is that there is no such thing as a pace that is too slow for easy running. Yes. And we've seen this. I mean, I think you see this in Kipchoge's training where Kipchoge, fastest marathoner in the world, sometimes he does runs at 12 minute pace. Yeah. And, you know, for him, that's, many minutes plus marathon, (laughs) marathon pace, yet he's still getting that zone one stimulus, like zone one, baby rocket. And it's fun to see Kipchoge do that too. And that applies to all training, not just runners that are listening to this. Anyone can go out there and any movement is good uh, beyond like a very, very, very low level. So like if you're walking at one mile an hour, that's probably not it. But if you're walking at three or four miles an hour, especially uphill, that's definitely it. Uh, If you're running real slow, that's definitely it. All of this builds the, you know, mitochondria and capillaries and things that are great. And that can comprise all of your easy running if that's what it takes to build up your volume and support your aerobic system. Even though we're giving athletes leeway, it doesn't have to be, Uh, which brings us to rule three. When an athlete feels good, it can be productive to spend time at or above aerobic threshold on some easy days. And that's the kind of complication we're addressing today. And I like what you wrote, actually. I want to read something that you wrote on this because I think it really encapsulates that point quite well. You said, look at almost any pro athlete, and you'll see it sometimes, particularly in uphills and in long runs. Some accounts say Coach Canova's athletes spend over a quarter of their weeks running a bit faster, but not quite workout efforts. Coach Jerry Schumacher's training principles are shrouded in mystery, but most agree that quality upper end aerobic long runs are a key element. 
Faster, easy runs supercharge aerobic stimuli, possibly improving the outputs at which the body uses fat instead of carbohydrates as fuel. Aerobic opitic power. Woohoo. They can increase muscular output, improve resiliency, and probably have some weakly understood neuromuscular benefits as well. Maybe it's even more complicated related to protein expression and epigenetics. Yeah. So um, essentially all that's to say long runs are maybe the best place to do this, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, these types of quality style long runs, they don't have to be steady. They can be tempo, things like that. They're great. Maybe add a secondary day if you feel great, um, which brings us to rule four. Just never force easy runs to be faster against the will of your psychology and your physiology. Um, you know, Usually we're talking one to three minutes slower than marathon pace, at least. Uh, the high end of that range for very fast runners, the low end for runners that might be running five or six hour marathons. Um, and listen to that first. Like if your runs are building up the stress and you're not adapting and you're not ready for workouts, then the easy runs are too fast. And then maybe in, when you're in the off season and you're not doing so many workouts or your workouts are really easy, the easy runs can get a little bit faster. Have that constant flow in training, responding to how you feel. And we've been talking about this mostly in the context of the aerobic system. So yeah. thinking about like, you know, aerobic lipidic power and angiogenesis or like the capillary formation that happens yeah. as a result of doing these easy runs, but easy runs and running is so much more complex than just the aerobic system. And I think it is important to make sure that you're watching the balance of stress on the musculoskeletal system yeah. as well, because if you're pushing easy runs constantly, it's a much higher musculoskeletal stress, especially if that involves downhills or, um, you know, depends on the terrain that you're running. And so also just make sure you keep an eye on how your body's feeling musculoskeletally and err on the side of like easy, easy, easy. So many injuries come from this, you know, like that, that's the risky part of this. So uphills, like the listener asked, are maybe the most beneficial place to do this. You get kind of bonus threshold work, or at least <laughs> above aerobic threshold work, if you use uphills to your advantage. I think it's one of the reasons that trail runners have totally different training contexts and they can just kind of go out and run in the mountains and excel. It's because they're doing threshold training without structuring it. Um, so similarly, uphills are an opportunity, especially for more beginner athletes to get some of that work in without doing necessarily big structured workouts. Just make sure you dial back your workouts so you're not loading the stress in at every single end because that might cause some negative outcomes. And you can also overdo the uphills too. Uh, that what goes up must come down yeah, unless you have the, the gift of a gondola, which is an amazing training <laughs> gift um, at the top of a mountain. So also be careful to understanding that once you go up, you got to come down. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, before we get to listener corner, quick shout out to Athletic Greens. We talked a lot about stress. If you want to manage stress, Athletic Greens is where it's at. Um, you know, I've just been such a huge fan. We've gotten almost all of our pro athletes on it. Um, including the athletes at Bandera. It's good shit. So athleticgreens.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. Um, I personally take it after runs, not before, um, but it's been really helpful. It's stealthily tasty too. What do you think, if you if you had to mix, so you had a glass of water, you yeah. can mix either protein powder in there or athletic greens in there, what would you do? Um, and it was just about taste, not about Just health. about taste, yeah. Well, I would throw the athletic greens in the trash and have anything else. <laughs> because as I talked about before, I do not love the taste, but I drink it anyway because it's great. I've actually started mixing it in with uh, chocolate milk, which is kind of some boss bitch advanced work. That's uh, pretty gross, actually. I'm pretty proud of it. Basically, you put anything in chocolate milk and I'm more of a fan. We've had a number of listeners chime in and I think the, the jury is out that that is not tasty. Well, you know that I despise the taste this much, yet I still recommend it to everyone. In fact, I've started to come around to it and like the taste more because I know what it's doing for my body. So um, as always, multivitamin has some great adaptogens. We're not exactly sure why it impacts HRV like it does, but we assume it has some relation to some of the adaptogens in there. Uh, but no matter what, it's great multivitamin. Totally recommend it. I've seen great things. So athleticgreens.com slash swap. Uh, and now with the best listener corner of all time to read for you all uh, coming off of Amelia's uh, 
interview from last week. We got so much feedback from the Amelia Boone episode. We it was it was great to talk with her. Amelia yeah. is one of our best friends, and it was truly just a conversation of us sitting down and having fun with our best friend. But she said a lot of like helpful and instructive things as it relates to like eating disorders, recovery, yeah. even just like life and thinking about balancing joy and competitive nature as an athlete. I loved it. Yeah. And if you're out there and that resonated with you, whether you're suffering from an eating disorder or addiction or any other sort of things, um, know we are here. So you can contact us anytime. Obviously, we're not going to cure your thing, but we will listen and we will hopefully help and, and let you know that you're not alone in this journey. Like everyone has something as we talked about. And sometimes those things are incredibly overwhelming mm-hmm. in ways that people can really only understand if they're going through it. Um, but we can be there for you and just like know that our emails are out there. Please, please contact us if you're going through something. And I think our core values discussion today was also an evolution of talking to Amelia because yeah. I can't think of an athlete that is true to her core values as much as Amelia. Yeah. It's so beautiful how she sticks to her core values and how she's like formulated and thought about her values over time. Like certainly those have evolved for her both as an athlete and a person. Yeah. And it was a fun exercise to do coming off that interview. <laughs> yeah. oh, before we get into this listener corner, it's so good. Um, I wanted to say, you and I talk about someone that lives love, Amelia's partner, Ryan Van Duzer. Oh my gosh, he's amazing. Yeah, so like when we sat down and talked about our core values, since that discussion, we've just watched his videos on YouTube. So he's a, um, a pretty famous bike packer. Um, so if you want some love in your life, also YouTube... Uh, Ryan Van Duzer, go to his page and watch the Great Divide videos, let's say. So you can just scroll down, see those on the there, the Colorado Trail. He is love embodied in a person and he's just like this in real life. Um, And it's given me such a warm hug each night. And I've come into this podcast with like zero blood pressure, (laughs) all because of the Duzer effect plus the Boone effect. Uh, So he did the Great Divide, which is this bike ride from Mexico all the way, right? It's it's from Canada all the way down to Mexico. And there's like 24 videos and it's, I look forward to it so much at night. It's like our ultimate date night is like setting a bed together and watching Ryan Van Duzer videos. They're great. But like an example of just how like jolly and enthusiastic and like genuinely filled of love he is. There was a day where he was facing like 45 mile hour winds. It looked horrible. It looked not fun. And he said a quote from one of his friends. He was like, you know, headwind is just tailwind that's in my face. And I couldn't think of like a better quote to like be emblematic of uh, Ryan and who he is as a person is just like embracing all the elements like that. It's so cool. And seeing them be together makes it, God, I'm just getting chills thinking about it. And that brings us to the listener corner. Holy cow, y'all's interview with Amelia was incredible. I was listening to it on my run this morning and found myself doing an awkward chuckle as she spoke about things that resonated all too well with me. I too struggled with an eating disorder for more than half my life. I was the quote chubby kid growing up who got made fun of. So I ended up losing a lot of weight in seventh grade through diet and then went on to develop a full-blown eating disorder that plagued me for the next 20 years. The lying and the shame are all too real. I went from being a, quote, chubby kid who was internally struggling because I was made fun of to a, quote, skinny teen slash adult who was internally struggling because I was so embarrassed to have this problem, lied to cover it up, and felt unworthy of love as a result. Who the heck could love someone who ate, quote, junk and then made themselves throw up? I lived in constant fear that someday everyone would find out that I was just this fraud of a human. So I built up some really high walls to protect myself and convinced myself I was fine just being alone with the exception of my dog. These (laughs) dogs are amazing and unconditionally love you no matter what. We don't deserve them, haha. Surprisingly, it was ultra running and a lot of the podcasts I listened to during my runs that helped me shift my views on food. The science of it all was very interesting. I finally started viewing food as this incredible thing that helped fuel these incredible adventures. And I really, really wanted to go on these adventures. So I had to start viewing food differently. 
Food is fun and food is fuel and fun food can be awesome fuel. My last 100 mile was fueled by a lot of pumpkin pie and my week of recovery afterwards, when I previously might have grossly underfueled, was fueled by some delicious grilled cheese and ice cream. Oh yeah. Life is so much more fun now knowing that vegetables and cookies have a place on my plate. Y'all's podcast has been a constant reminder to hold myself accountable and question myself when I start to develop views on food that might be unhealthy again. Example, questioning whether I should become vegetarian. What are the motives behind that? Am I just looking to control food again and feel special because I'm good at having restrictive tendencies? I know you have impacted so many lives and I'm just so appreciative of you. Now I'm dying to hear even more of Amelia's story. Thank you for all you do. That was an incredible email. I just actually wanted to reiterate the sentence. And this is a sentence, it's a, a twisty sentence, but I'm yeah. going to read it because I like it so much. Food is fun and food is fuel and fun food can be awesome fuel. Yeah. I feel like we need to put that in a t-shirt. And I love that sentiment. Also, this person sharing their journey is so beautiful. Yeah. And clearly they have a great personality and <laughs> you know humor along the way too. And just grateful for that. Yeah, we've gone back and forth on email and they're one of the best people ever, which is so many of our podcast listeners. But you know, this points out, this person talking to them is so brilliant, so kind, so loving, and they were still struggling, right? And it started when they were in seventh grade, started when they were a kid. Who knows what's the initial spark on that? I mean, I've opened up about my journey a little bit, but I was the big kid in class and I too lost a ton of weight in seventh grade. Like almost all my body mass was really unhealthy. And I was fortunate that sports saved me, right? Like I was doing football, and in in other things where I needed to have more mass on my body. And so it changed my relationship gradually, though it was a process and I still had thoughts for quite a while. Um, And similarly, that's how we want running to be for Mm -hmm. everyone. To be a runner, you need to fuel your body. And in that process, everything can be on that table. Not just talking about things like vegetables and cookies and burgers and, and pizza, but also things like Fritos and potato chips and whatever else brings you joy. And by doing that, you're also going to support your athletic adaptation the most. So um, no wherever you're at on that journey, you are loved and you are not alone. Um, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that light at the end of the tunnel has pizza. Well, I love that you brought up the point brilliance because, and yeah. you talked about your story as well. You're the most brilliant human I've ever met. <laughs> I would put you up to do an IQ battle against like anyone Thank in you. this world. And I'm like, I love that about you. It's one of the big reasons why I married you is you're so brilliant. But I think oftentimes we read these emails from athletes with yeah. similar tone of like, you know, struggle around food or struggle around, you know, any different number of things. And they are all such brilliant emails. And I think yeah. sometimes the side effect of being brilliant is having struggles like this. And it's a, you know, it's a really hard and difficult side effect, also side effect of being human. But I think brilliance is at the heart of it. And I'm really proud of this listener. And And sometimes it's like really personal struggles with behaviors Mm -hmm. like this and like thought patterns. Other times it gets back more to the general death discussion we had in mental health. Um, And that's why when we say you are loved, we don't mean you are loved because you do something the right way. We are saying you are loved because we are on this journey together. And the person out there you, that you think has it all figured out is going through the same thing that you are. We're all in that same tunnel. And within that tunnel, like, let's put on little lights. Let's get little candles going and give people love, including the people that it might be hard to love sometimes because they're usually the people that need it most of all. Including the people that can get eaten by sewer clowns. <laughs> we love you too. We do, yeah. eventually. And we love the sewer crown who has all that good protein <laughs> and is ready to crush his runs in the future. So give a big shout out to the sewer clown at your next race. And we love you all. Woohoo! Huzzah! Bye.